morning. Let's pray together. Father God, we are so thankful for an opportunity, uh, even amidst uh, some chaos around us uh, in the world. Well, not, that's not the sum. An immense chaos in the world around us and some relative chaos in this building that we are still able to meet together in the name of your Son. And Father, that we are still able to open your word, to see what it has for us. Father, that we are able to sit here and hear your word over our lives and trust that the Spirit will apply what it needs to apply. And Father, that you are always, always about the business of making us more like your Son. And Father, we never have to wonder what's going on in this world. We never have to wonder if you are in control. We never have to wonder what you are doing because we know that your chief aim for us is to make us into the image of your Son. So Father, let us trust that and let us lean into you and your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I know what it is to be broken. I know the struggle to understand that my sins of yesterday and yesteryear are forgiven, even when I can't forgive myself. I know the, the horror of finding my heart and my mind pushing away Scripture, pushing away this indictment in my heart of the Word of God as I attempt to rationalize my sin. I know the pain of losing family members for the sake of the gospel, only to wonder if my church family will be there for me and my family in our time of need. I know the fear of wondering if people would, would miss me if I were gone or only the things that I, I do. I know the regret of getting the, the biggest and most sincere hug of my entire life from a female student, one that actually took my breath away. And rather than embrace her in love, I worried about how it would appear to others. And she embraced death herself not long after that. I know the, the looking back on it, <laughs> the gross teenage stupidity, yet still very real and convincing and promising allure of the oncoming Mack semi-truck. I know the uncertainty and helplessness of wondering if I would lose one of my daughters twice now. I know what it's like to be deemed someone's hero only to be later made into the villain. I know what it's like to be betrayed by those that you gave your life to. I know the fear that with one wrong step breaking one of these verses that is to come that I could lose my job, my ministry, my provision, and maybe even my own family. I am a broken man. And the question today when we look at this text is how can such a broken man be qualified as a shepherd? And better yet, how can God care for his people through a broken shepherd? And see, the reality is, is that I'm not the only broken one. I know that. My brokenness doesn't make me unique. It makes me just like you. I know that my suffering pales in comparison to others, and maybe even to your own. You see, brokenness surrounds us. The world that we live in is dangerous. Wolves await at the gates, slipping in and tempting and even devouring our hearts and our minds. But brokenness doesn't just surround us. It's not just in the world. It's in us. Take care of that. 
Brokenness is in us as well. You see, our own flesh tempts us to wander from the God who loves us so. So I, just like you, am a lost sheep. I'm a lost sheep in need of a good shepherd to come and to rescue me. I need a good shepherd to guide me, a good shepherd to equip me, to protect me, to encourage me through this broken world and through my own broken heart. I need a good shepherd. And Jesus claims to be that good shepherd in John 10. If you have your Bibles, let's go there first today. John 10, verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. And when he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so our question today, as we look at our text, our primary text, was how can you know the voice of your good shepherd? And how can you know the voice of your under-shepherds? And go with me to First Timothy chapter 3. Verses 1 through 7, Paul is writing to Timothy and he gives him qualifications for an elder. This is having, after having already described for them the danger and practices of the false teachers in chapter 1 and going on to give roles for men and women. He comes to this point and he says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare or trap of the devil. And so if we are broken people and I am a broken man, then how do we handle these qualifications? What do we do with this text? I mean, it is a massive task to attempt to ascend this mountain of qualifications given by Paul. So what is the first thing that we need to understand if we want to try to understand how these two things fit together, how God uses broken men despite their brokenness and qualifies them to be elders? The first thing is that God qualifies his men. God qualifies his men. You see, God makes them elders. We saw that last week in Acts 20, 28. It says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers for a specific task to care for the church of God. Why? Because he obtained it with his own blood. And so by the blood of Christ, we have been made 
from the Holy Spirit overseers of the church. God qualifies and makes them his men. It's interesting, too, that other men appoint those elders. So while it is God's action, it is other men who appoint these elders. In Titus 1.5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And so the first primary distinction today is that the elder of God's church is not a self-made man. The elder of God's church is not a self-made man. Everything that he is comes through the work of a good shepherd, working through the lives of his appointed under-shepherds. I mean, this is my testimony. I would be a miserable wreck if not for the grace of God in my life. All these pains and fears and regrets and uncertainties and worries would consume me. And I would still live them out as if they were true. Total depravity, guys, is an easy one. (laughs) I'm capable of nothing good apart from the intervening work of the Holy Spirit in my life. Kids, did you hear that? You, you are, I, I hate to break it to you guys, you are not capable of doing anything good apart from God's help. You're not. It's not an excuse. Don't throw that at mom and dad after lunch today. All right, it's not my fault. God didn't help me on that one. All right? I just gave you a lunch topic. You're welcome. We are capable of nothing good apart from God's help. Why? Because we have bad hearts. We have bad hearts. Our hearts are evil. All we want is bad things. And so apart from God's intervening work in any of our lives, we can do no good. In the case of these qualifications, I could not do these on my own. I could not. If I am qualified, it is not my work, it is the Holy Spirit's. I mean, I want to be smart enough, strong enough, caring enough, creative enough to solve every possible situation, to solve every problem. I either know enough that I can fix it, or I'm big enough that I can move it. Whatever it is, I want to be the hero. I don't want to be seen as wanting. I want to be an independent, self-made man. But apart from the good shepherd showing me my brokenness and then moving in my life, I would be a mess. And so here is the second distinction for today. If the first is that the elder of God's church is not a self-made man, then the second is this. Elders are qualified based on their character, not their abilities. Elders are qualified based on their character, not their abilities. You can have all sorts of different gifts. You can have all sorts of different talents and abilities. In fact, the Holy Spirit gives manifest gifts to the church, and they are different to each one. Romans 12, 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. 1 Corinthians 12, 4, now there are varieties of gifts but the same spirit later in that chapter, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Chapter 13, love. Ephesians 4 8, therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. There are many gifts, but there is one standard for character. There is one standard for character. A recent conversation in my life over uh, other newly appointed elders in different churches uh, comes about in conversation as I talk about us bringing on a new one ourselves. And I hear about these other newly appointed elders that they're they're great leaders. They're so nice. They're they're really smart. You would not believe how smart these people are. And in fact, I mean, they have such successful businesses. I don't want to hear any of that. Is he qualified? That's my concern. Is he qualified? 
I want to hear you say that he is a godly man. Can you say that? Because we have manifest leaders in the church who had successful businesses but have destroyed home lives. One that actually is a qualification. See, most of the concern even over Greg is, is concerning his abilities. The concerns that have come to Matt and I, most of the concerns are about, I should say all that I know of, are about his abilities. And they're good concerns. I, I understand that. But let me say this. Greg is a godly man. Greg is a godly man. You can train abilities. It's something that I revisit yearly, sometimes even daily. I love learning new things. I love learning how to do things better. I am in a constant pursuit to tame my procrastination and disorganization through different means. That is my pursuit of training my abilities and leadership because I would just like to read books and teach. That's what I do well. And so I have to train my abilities. You can train abilities. You cannot train this kind of character. You cannot. We've, we've tried in the past to model much of our leadership of training character, and that is not something that we can do. God gives the growth in the church and in people. And so you cannot train this kind of character. What a man is is made by the Spirit. God has moved in his life. And so I can share no better testimony about this man than what the Spirit has testified to in his life over the past eight years that I've known him. Greg is a godly man. And when it comes to our elder body, future elder body, I don't, I don't trust Matt and, and Greg because of their abilities. And in many ways, they have abilities that are beyond me. But that's not why I trust them. It's not over Matt's ability to get things done. It's not over Greg's care and compassion and his ability to care for people. I trust them because they're men of integrity. That's, that's huge. That is the foundation stone for my trust for them, is their integrity. And I think that's the purpose of this passage for us in 1 Timothy. And we have this contrast going on between chapter 1 of these false teachers, these selfish men that are out for their own gain, that are leading the church, God's people. And he contrasts the character with these godly men. These men of integrity. How does he do that with broken men? Well, God takes broken men and he, he makes them into his under-shepherds. The whole point last week is that you can trust us, you can trust your elders, because of the Holy Spirit's work in their lives. And if we forget from the get-go that Jesus is about restoring broken things, then we will miss everything. We will miss everything. He takes years of rebellion and he chastens them into faithfulness. He takes heartache and he fashions it into compassionate care for others. He takes weakness and he displays his mighty strength. You see, if you find sin in me, I'm not shocked. You will. Until the end of my days. It is my mortal enemy. It's an enormous weight to battle my own sin. Genesis 4-7 says, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. God's words to Cain right before he murders his brother. But I not only battle my own sin, I walk with you in battling yours. In some ways, you'll see next week, I have to answer for your sin. I have to give an account for your soul. I'm not perfect. As John Stott says, no son of Adam would ever qualify for a share in the oversight if he must be faultless. I'm far from that. If I'm qualified, I'm qualified by God's grace and his grace alone. And I will walk with you by God's grace and his grace alone.
my task and my desire is to be a model for you, a faith that's worth imitating. Indeed, these qualifications are meant for all God's people, not just his elders. This is not some super Christian. This is not some person who's got it figured out. This is someone who is being shaped and molded by the mercy and grace of God. And it's meant for all of us. The office of elder is an example. So what does this mean for you? What does this mean for the church? What does broken shepherds walking with broken people look like? I'm going to quickly move through these qualifications and sections. I'm going to briefly identify them, but my hope really is to mostly illustrate the implications of the relationship between how the qualification impacts the sheep's walk with the under-shepherd. That's a thesis statement. It felt like a run-on, and I couldn't figure out how to shorten it. So I'm going to say it again in pieces. <laughs> We're going to quickly move through these, these qualifications and sections. How many of you, this might be the first time you've heard a sermon on qualifications for elders? None? Okay, fantastic. I'm going to move freely. Good. All right. Here's my hope, though. I want to illustrate the implications, or what happens, in the relationship between how the qualification and men with those qualifications impacts the way that you walk with us. That's my goal today. So let's look at the next piece, then. Elders are men of character. Elders are men of character. What do elders in the local church look like? There are two primary things at the, at, the, at the forefront of this. One is that they are called, and the other is that they are above reproach. I left lots of space for you to write down however you want to attack this on your notes. One is that they are called, and that they are above reproach. And so our first aspect of this is that they aspire to, right? This is not, though, a sense of selfish ambition for prestige and power. Indeed, in in our culture today, there's not even a prestige with the office anymore. And once you are in the office of elder, you will quickly find that you indeed do not have power over anyone. Um, That's typically how it works. And we recognize that it is God's hand that moves people. And so this is not for the sense of, of selfish ambition or for prestige and power. Someone was asking me um, about the, how renovation is doing and how I'm doing and how long Matt has been here, and they ultimately said that it's time for him to move on so that I can take the next step. As if there was some ladder for me to climb in our church, uh, as if it were the corporate world. There's no sense of selfish ambition for God's men. It's not for prestige. It's not for power. What is it for? What do they aspire to? Why is it a noble task? Because it's the care and nurturing of God's people. That's what a shepherd does. They care for God's people. They nurture God's people. One of the questions on Renovate Us, I believe, was, could you have a qualified man and not be an elder? The answer is yes and no. You see, you could have a man who is qualified as far as all of the characteristics that we're getting ready to attack are concerned, but if they're not called, they're not qualified. That's one of the qualifications. So not every man who has the character that we are talking about must be an overseer. They must be called. They must desire it. There must be an aspect of which they want the job. You see, a, a shepherd who doesn't really want to fulfill the task is a, is a dismal prospect indeed. That is an ugly picture of a man who must be forced to care for others. That's exactly what you want leading you, right? There must be some desire to care for and nurture God's people. But the second piece is that they must be above reproach. Uh, way you probably typically hear this is that they have a blameless reputation. What are we specifically talking about here? Again, it can't be what we said earlier, perfection. 
of faultlessness. No son of Adam would ever qualify for a share in oversight if that were the case. So what are we talking about? We're talking about irreproachable, observable conduct. Irreproachable, observable conduct. You, the body, the church, are not necessarily responsible for what happens in our heads. That's our safe place, and it's not always safe. Um, You're not responsible for that. What we're talking about in above reproach is things that you could come to us on that are observable. Is there still concern for the head? Of course. Um, But that's not what we're getting after here. Irreproachable, observable conduct. Can they be blameless? Or are there things that are regularly happening in their life that you need to confront them on? And so in general, the two main overarching qualifications are that they must aspire to be called and be above reproach. Now in the spirit of John Piper, who likes to offer up a number of things and say we'll hope to get through as many as we can, um, I have 10 things I'd like to share with you. Uh, I, there's no good way to condense this into a point. They all have imperatives uh, because this is the description of the Christian character. So that's your imperative. Uh, with that, we have 10 things, and we're going to move through these remaining qualifications. Number one is fidelity and marriage. Fidelity and marriage or faithfulness. He must be faithful to his one wife, a man of unquestioned morality, one who is entirely true and faithful to his one and only wife. He's faithful to his one wife, a man of unquestioned morality, one who is entirely true and faithful to his one and only beloved See, when we talk about overseers of the church, these are men who are called to teach doctrine and to exercise discipline. And so they must themselves have an unblemished reputation in the area of sex and marriage. They must be unquestioned in their morality. Where there's concern there, there's concern for love of the bride. It's not surprising to me that this is one of the top qualifications, particularly after blamelessness. When we think about the culture at the time, first of all, but then when we think about the function of the office of overseer, if a man, a leader, has trouble loving his wife and being exclusive to her, what does that say about the potential relationship of the man to the church, to God's bride. More practically, as we talk about how this qualification impacts our relationship, guys, ladies particularly, you can engage Matt and Greg and I knowing that we are pure in our motives towards you. There's no concern on your end, or should be, that we would take advantage of you in any way, that you are not safe around us, because we are wholly and faithfully committed to our brides. That should be an implication of this relationship. Men, you don't have to worry about covetousness on our part because we are faithfully committed to our one wife. That should free up this idea of family in a very significant way, one in which there's trust and no questioning over motives, over concerns, over desires, over agendas, It's a place where there's freedom to operate together in relationship that is unhindered by the bondage of sexual slavery. But even more so, when we think about the personal relationship of an elder to the body, you have a trust or a hope that we are not fettered by the bondage of sexual slavery as well. From pornography to extramarital affairs, our attention, our Holy Spirit, Our conviction is on target because we eschew these other things. That should open up great manifold trust in the relationship from elder to sheep. There are huge implications for the faithfulness that's displayed in the trials of marriage for what it means for a man to display faithfulness in the trials of church. Neither of us are yet made whole. 
There's a day that the bride looks forward to the consummation day when we are made pure and we are brought forth in white. And so for now, as we experience the fires and trials of marriage, as we are sanctified in our personal marriages and then in the union that the church has with Christ, we see a beautiful picture taking place where we are made more and more like the bride that we will be in Revelation 4 and in 20. Fidelity in marriage is a top marker. This is a sole reason why we have delayed Greg's time as an elder. We would have loved to appoint him last year, but we needed to see how he operated in his marriage. He has been blameless. This is a huge marker for freedom. This is a huge marker practically as we think about what does it mean for us to walk with you. For I have no business instructing you men on how to walk with your wives if I don't walk in an equitable way with my wife. Move on. Self-mastery. You have a little trifecta here. Under self-mastery, we would include sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. I want to give a couple alternate wordings of that to help kind of flourish those a bit. Sober-minded, they must be temperate. I like the word temperate. That's probably because I've read a lot of old books. Sober-minded or temperate. Self-controlled, such as like sensible and disciplined. Respectable, as in their outward expression of inward self-control. So respectable is gaining respect because of or in, uh, in consequence of the self-control that is inward. And so you have this kind of playing out. You have temperate in their demeanor, <clears throat> self-controlled in themselves, disciplined, and then respectable self-controlled, the expression outward of that self-control. You see, leaders are often left for considerable periods unsupervised. So that they have to really supervise themselves. To be sure, they are still people of flesh and blood with the same emotions and passions as other human beings, but the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. As far as I am aware, none of you have come into the office at any point and be like, just wanted to make sure you guys were studying for Sunday. Just want to make sure, Matt, you're okay. You're on track to get your sermon done. None of you have done that, right? No one's come into my office and be like, Russell, are you sure you should be reading that and not this one? I mean, this seems like the, just want to make sure you're doing what you're supposed to do. You guys have a trust that we are sensible, that we are self-controlled, that we are about the task as we oversee ourselves. That's what these things lend themselves to. So when we think about how this affects the body, you need a leader who is self-controlled, he's sensible, disciplined, because leaders are the ones that set the pace. Leaders are the ones that set the direction. An elder is an overseer, and so for them to be able to see well, they must be self-controlled in the way that they go about it. We'll continue on. Hospitality. Self-mastery makes giving, then hospitality or self-giving possible. And for an elder to be self-mastered then makes the opportunity for them to be self-giving. And hospitality, as far as we're concerned in kind of defining this, is literally a love for strangers. A love for strangers. This is not the huge imperative anymore that we always see in Scripture and, and uh, hospitality teaching, typically, that we have to... It's born from the, from the traveling people. We don't have traveling people as much anymore, and they didn't have hotels. We have a Red Roof Inn, right? So people can get those kind of shelters themselves. So what does this mean for us now? What should you be looking for in an elder who is supposed to be qualified in hospitality? Do they love strangers? The, as the Beatles would say, lonely people. Look at all the lonely people. They're everywhere. There are lonely people everywhere. Now, as an introvert and as someone who doesn't like confrontation, it's not easy for me to go up to people I don't know. It's really hard. But what compels me is my love for strangers. I know what it's like to be lonely. I know the despair that comes with loneliness. 
And I know that many people in our world are lonely. Neighbors who have no one to look in on them. No one that talks to them. You see them at the grocery stores. They walk by and they keep their head down. (laughs) They're lonely people. How do your elders care for lonely people? How do they love strangers? The hospitality aspect also, as far as we're concerned in this relationship aspect, what does it mean to have an elder that is hospitable? It means that you have a safe place. You have a safe place. You have a place that you can come to that is safe, that you will find protection, that you will find encouragement, that you will find provision. Our home is open at any time for any one of you. And it's not just a place to stay. We will care for you. Everyone needs a place that is safe. And not everyone has that. So your elders should be leaders in giving a safe place. Opening up what is theirs for self-giving. We continue. The teaching ability. You see, suddenly in the middle of this series of moral qualities, I mean, we've gone through several already. You have above reproach, you have fidelity in marriage, you have self-mastery and sober-mindedness, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. You have six in a row moral qualities, but then we find this suddenly a single professional, as it were, qualification is mentioned. The ability or to be able to teach, or and as the, uh, another version would say, an apt teacher. You see, it follows that from this fact that it's placed here in the middle of these moral qualities is that pastors are in their essence teachers. It's part of their identity. It is part of their character. It's part of who they are. It's not something they do. And when I said earlier that elders are based on their character and not their abilities and able ability, I see the connection here. But do you see the placement in what we're talking about? They are teachers. It is their essence. In fact, what distinguishes Christian pastoral ministry is the preeminence in it of the word of God. This man is about God's word and his character. That's deep. That's a high calling. But it's the calling that Jesus gives us when he says that we don't live by bread alone, but on the word of God. Where it is in them, it is part of who they are. That's where the horror that comes to my mind when I try to rationalize sin, and I feel, it's a feeling of conviction when these verses come into my brain and I actively push them out to deal with them later. It's a scary place to be. But the word is in this man. And he lives by it. See, the fact that overseers must have a teaching gift shows that the church has no liberty to ordain any whom God has not called and gifted. This man must be about God's word. What does this mean in our relationship? It means that when you are with Matt or myself and Greg in the future, I pray that there is no time that you walk away feeling as if you didn't feel, get, eat, experience the word. That's what we are about. That's what we engage each other with. Everything that we do and talk about is a reflection of our convictions because the word is a part of who we are. I would contend that no Christian can make it if this is not something that is increasingly true about them. Why? Because we hide your word in our hearts that we may not sin against you. I hope that when you experience time with us, that in some way you are blessed by the word because that is what we base our lives on. That is what we stand on. That is particularly where all of our authority would come from. There's another aspect of that that we'll deal with in a subsequent section. The next one, then, drinking habits. 
Because the alcohol is a depressant. It blunts and it blurs our faculty of judgment. And those called to teach should not, or I'm sorry, those, <laughs> those called to teach should take special warning. You see, it's perhaps not an accident, I think, that not given to drunkenness should immediately follow an apt teacher. The drinking and teaching don't go well together. What Paul requires this specifically is moderation. And as an example of the self-mastery that's already mentioned, not least because pastors are invited to many social functions at which wine flows freely, at least as John Stott would say back in England, a little bit more. <laughs> Drinking should not be hidden, furthermore. That may even be more dangerous. Many, I think all of you know, our stance on drink. We like blueberry tea and blueberry coffee and blueberries in general. Um, but uh, <laughs> we also like to experience other drink as well. For a long time, I did not because of my position, particularly working with youth uh, as, a, as a primary part of my ministry. Uh, but I do now. The idea is that it should be in moderation. I pray that any time that you've experienced any type of drinking around us, that it has been in moderation, that it's been honoring. What are the practical relationships of that one with the body? A little less wild parties um, and a normal football experience, right? Um, for those of you that have maybe stronger convictions over drinking than, than we share, um, we hope that you've never felt as if we've come against you in that. Um, we hope that we uh, serve you as well as we can and in, in inviting you into communion with us um, as we put that away uh, for your sake. We don't want to be a stumbling block in any way on those things. And in some ways that we have been, we've been uh, encouraged on that and hopefully rectified it. We don't want to be a stumbling block in any way, even as we believe that we can experience this together in moderation. The concern here is this. Are they giving themselves over to something? Are they giving themselves over to something? It is an issue of self-mastery that we're talking about here particularly as it relates to our ability to utilize God's word. Going on, temper and temperament. What does this mean? It says not violent, but gentle, comma, not quarrelsome. There's an important section in this. Is true Christian teachers are above all to be gentle. And we see the gentleness of Christ illustrated in the freedom with which he joined others, the freedom with which he brought children to himself, the freedom with which people were able to approach the Son of God. We see it in the way that he took on the perception of a lamb. Jesus was gentle. Jesus was gentle. True Christian leaders are above all to be gentle. Uh, one commentator said it this way, it should be a sweet reasonableness. A sweet Reasonableness. I, I like that, and it was even convicting some to me. And this, this sweet feeling of reasonableness when you encounter an elder. You see, Paul's entire appeal to the Corinthians is based on by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. This should be a foundational and fundamental approach that the elders of God's church have, is that they are gentle people. This has long in my life been an issue of, uh, not humiliation, but uh, joking. And I am the gentle giant, right? Um, everyone in football on the rest of the line would get angry while they were doing what they were doing. And I would just be about my task. I was not emotional at all. Said, Hut, you're going over here. That's, your, that's my job. These guys are angry and they're thrashing. I don't get like that. That's not me. I am a sweet, reasonable offensive lineman. You're going to go where I ask you to, and you're going to like it. Um, that's what we do. So <laughs> for me, gentleness has not necessarily been an issue. For me, some of it, though, is in my, uh, my patience that we want to talk about. So all of these are, are such big and investigative qualifications. They're huge. There's so much of these that I can't cover right now, and I'm not, I'm not trying. Um, if you have more questions on any of these or about the way that we do it carefully, but please come ask, okay? I, we would love to encourage you in these things. But like patience is a big one on this. And, and John Stott says this with patience. He says, 
that his patience may be sorely tried by demanding and aggravating people, but like his master, he will seek to be gentle, never crushing a bruised reed or snuffing out a wick that is burning low. The gentleness with which we approach the office is, is, is trying to be like this. Now, as a fruit of the Spirit, this should be something that comes naturally from the walk of the elder with God. But here's where this one gets a little tricky as we talk about the relationship that you feel between us and the implications of it. We're going to go after your heart. That's our job. Our job is to shepherd your soul, your heart, the innermost part of you, your desires. That's our job. We're, we're not about just shepherding the mind or the behavior. Ideally, when you think about our families, that we are not behavioralists. We're concerned about the hearts of our children who are not redeemed, I would remind you. Um, so please give us grace in that. Uh, your children may not be redeemed at this point either. And so we are shepherding their hearts as well. And the way that we maintain discipline in our family is the same way that we maintain discipline in the church. And that's by going after the heart, the desires of man. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The heart is deceitfully wicked. We have to be careful when we talk about the heart. But here's the problem when we think about temper and temperament, about not being violent but gentle. It's not going to feel gentle when we go after your heart, wife, mother, children, if your father does not go after your heart. Husband, it is not going to feel gentle sometimes when we go after your heart if you are not after your heart and your walk with Christ. As we talked about in gospel fluency, we are to take every thought captive, make it obedient to the will of Christ. If you're not doing that and we come after one of those and take it captive with you, it's going to feel hard. Now there are ways that we can do that carefully and ways that we try to, but that is in the realm of wisdom. And we ask that you give us grace in the realm of wisdom. Discernment is a big part of this, this whole discussion. When we talk about uh, them being sober-minded and temperate and being uh, discerning. But the question is, when we go after the heart, what comes out? Because that's precisely what we're trying to work on and discover with you. So when we talk about going after your heart, we're not going to do it violently. And in some cases, we can't go right for that. Sometimes we have to, have to kind of work in through the mind. Sometimes we have to deal with the fruit of the tree before we get to the branches, before we get to the trunk, before we get to the root. And that's part of being gentle. If it were me alone... I would just cut down the tree and be like, here's the roots, let's go. That can't be the way that we go after it. That's violent. Now here's also what it's not. Not quarrelsome. And you see, a gentle pastor will be neither violent, he won't be a bully with the tongue or the hand, and he won't be quarrelsome. If it feels like bullying, tell us. Tell us. We don't want to be a bully. But what we will not do is back off the heart. We will handle you as gently as possible, but understand that our one job <laughs> in caring for you is to give you the word which hits your heart. And that's what we are about. So we want to be gentle. I've belabored this a little bit, but it's very practical in the relationship between us. Now with that, let's move on. Attitude to money. Later at the end of the letter to Timothy in chapter 6, verse 10, Paul is going to call the love of money a root of all kinds of evil. And so the attitude towards money must not be for selfish gain, right? You must be sober in his control of money. And what's interesting is that Paul also in the same book calls for not just ample but actually rather extravagant remuneration for his pastors. Double honor, caring for all of their needs so that they are, are not without. But even in that kind of care, he needs to not be loving money, not a lover of money. 
You see, the job of elder, the office of elder, the task of elder is not about material compensation. It is not. That's not the hope with which we look forward to. The third Sunday of every month is not the happiest Sunday for me. That's when I, I get my salary. Um, that's not what it's about. And for the elder, his joy comes from feeding the sheep and from seeing sheep grow. That, that does not compare to money. Money has nothing to hold a candle to the growth of sheep. To see God's people love his word, to take it into their lives, and to begin to look more like Jesus is one of the best things that we could possibly see. And that's what we are about. That's what we are after. But it's not only that. Randy Alcorn talks about eternity as this line, one of these handy-dandy ones on the floor, stretching from one end to the other. And our life is a bottle cap at one end. And for the man who gives all of his life for that bottle cap, loses eternity. But God's man, God's woman, as it were, lives that bottle cap with eternity in mind. You see, our hope, our true material gain, as it were, comes from the reward that we experience in heaven. From friends and family, now made family in Christ, from strangers, the lonely people, those who are without hope, brought into the family of God to experience eternity with us. Even on the financial end, our finances go to the storehouse. They go to eternity, where no thief can attack it and no moth can consume it. So when it comes to money, church planning is not exactly one that this is a concern for. Um, this has been relatively easy for me in one sense and hard in another. The way that God has brought about my provision for the past eight years has been really awesome. <laughs> uh, we have had three vehicles given to us. That is the hand of God. Those people are generous, but it is the hand of God providing for my family. We've had hearing aids provided. We've had medical and dental work provided for us. We've never been in need. Never. God has been good. There are other times where I struggle and I'm thinking, well, still not there, still not there. Another job comes up, even in the area that pays three times what I make. For youth pastors, it's tempting, but that's not why I'm here. I remember sitting on the couch in front of my previous pastor and my mentor, and he asked me after Matt had texted me, we got, he bought me steak and said, hey, I want you to come plant a church with me. Uh, this is how this whole spiritual thing went down, uh, steak. Um, <laughs> he says, I want you to come plant a church with me. I'm like, am I last on your list? <laughs> All right, that's why this hints the steak. Um, <laughs> I took a long time to get back to him, and I'm not entirely sure why, but I remember sitting on the couch in front of my pastor, and he said, so, what are you going to do? I said, man, the only reason I can say no is because of money, and that's not a good reason. So, into the breach. <laughs> and that's been our story, and God has provided everything we need. And so the attitude for money must be reasonable. Why? Because they command the church's storehouse. And they cannot be selfish in that they're working. I have to discipline myself to work as hard as I would, even if I, as if I was getting paid what I should get, be getting paid. You see, the recompense for what I do is not based on the finances that I get, but on the command and call of God and the task that he's given so attitude of money is a very practical reason because if this is my motivation, money, to care for you, it's not going to get you very far and it won't get you where you need to be in your times of need. Continue. Domestic discipline. We have the family in mind here. The pastor's family and God's church. And he uses the word oikos for both. And so the, the elder is called to leadership in two families, his and God's. And the former is to be the training ground for the latter. He must manage them. That means leader, literally lead them. 
And it combines two concepts together. You might want to write this down. Rule and care. Rule and care. They are overseers. <clears throat> so, these two merging of concepts of ruling and caring indicate that although pastoral ministry is a servant ministry characterized by gentleness, a certain authority still attaches to it. One cannot expect discipline in the local church if pastors have not learned to exercise it in their own homes. The way that we care for you, the way that we bring about discipline in the church is carefully measured just as it is carefully measured at home. The extra added benefit of being in a plurality of elders is that the times that I am not measured in my discipline at home and later must repent and ask for forgiveness for my children for those things is that these guys will stop me <laughs> in the church. It allows us to be measured together in the way that we seek to do what we do. Now, again, in many cases, we're in the realm of wisdom, and that's a difficult place to be. And so the implication of this in our relationship is that as you see modeled in our families, you can trust that that same level of care, of effort, of specificity is playing out in our church care as well. If you don't see those things in our families, some of that may just because you can't see. Um, and so ask. And two, uh, if you don't see that, then maybe you should ask and be concerned about those things. But as you see the way that we discipline and lead and manage our homes, you should be able to then gain insight and trust into how we manage the church. Move on. Spiritual maturity. What must they be? <laughs> well, clearly converts, right? But must they not be recent converts? <laughs> Here's the main danger. Apart from not being mature enough to bear responsibility in the first place is pride. Too much responsibility too soon. What can happen? They become conceited. I thought this was hilarious um, when I saw this. This is from John Stott who, if I remember, is like an older English pastor, right? Uh, from England when I say English. And uh, he used this phrase, which to me brings to mind a significant portion of the Lego movie. Uh, he says that when someone is conceited, they go to cloud cuckoo land. Um, if you've seen the movie, I'm, you're seeing what I'm seeing, right? Princess Unikitty, right? Everyone? Okay, most of you. I'll take it. Um, cloud cuckoo land. What is cloud cuckoo land? Well, from the movie, this is a very practical one. It's a realm of self-centered fantasy. And so you have this recent convert who's given too much responsibility too soon. It goes to his head with power. He is conceited, and so he lives in a realm of self-centered fantasy. Now, the indictment here is significantly stronger than it is in these other ones. In the other cases, they're just not qualified to lead. Now, for the man who bases his identity on an elder, that's a pretty significant thing. But this one is... is is much more heavy. Such people fall under the same judgment as the devil. Such people fall under the same judgment as the devil. Church, protect young converts from giving them too much responsibility too soon. Or you become complicit in sending them to cloud cuckoo land. When we think about qualifying broken men, we see that humility is a necessary qualification for the pastorate. And it's not, it's not, I can't say in the beginning of my sermon when I'm talking about how broken I am, I can't echo what Paul says about being the chief of sinners. I can't. That, that would be false humility. I know where I am on that scale. It's not very high. But Paul is, is Paul was a murderer. I've murdered people with hate. It's not that kind of humility. What we're talking about is humility before God that's played out in a life of personal devotion, faith, and obedience. Why? Because these are the true markers of humility lived out. The man who recognizes that he doesn't know what to do all the time. 
The man who recognizes that he isn't a self-sufficient, self-made, independent man is one who is personally devoted to Christ, who has faith that God will do what he cannot do, and he will be obedient in living out the commands of God. Because God has prepared steps in advance for us to do, good things for us to do, because he has created us for good works. Because true love of God is displayed in true obedience in 1 John. We see that obedience to a personal devotion and faith in Christ is a true marker of humility, not the man who simply says he's little, but the man who lives little and a big God. Next one, outside reputation. This is, this is a, not a, some random capstone to a list. It's not the most insignificant because it's at the bottom. It's huge. At the end of all of these qualifications, we remember this. The world is watching. And so we must be wise in our behavior towards outsiders, and we have to win their respect. You see, in the devil's malicious eagerness to discredit the gospel, he does his best to discredit the ministers of the gospel. It's an old trick with a long history. It's happened in recent days around me and my life. The devil's used it for centuries, and it remains an effective strategy today. When the leader falls, the church often goes with it. And unfortunately, this trick is often employed by churchmen as well. Outside reputation. So, what does this mean then? Elders are men of faith. Elders are men of faith. This is all lived by faith. All of the qualifications are lived by faith. If I'm qualified, it is not because of my own work. It is because of the grace of God in my life. It's because of faith. Romans 12 1 through 3 talks about how we are given faith by God. We pray for faith. I pray for faith. The idea is that these elders will be qualified in such a way that you are able to imitate their faith. Paul calls the people around him to imitate his faith. You should be able to imitate our faith. At the end of the day, when you are talking about identifying Greg as an elder, in this place. The question that I ask myself as an elder is would I emulate his leadership in my home? And the answer is yes. Is his way of faith worthy of imitation? Is my way of faith worthy of imitation? Is Matt's way of faith worthy of imitation? And so pray for faith for you and pray for faith for us. Because elders are men of faith. I wanted to spend some time in Romans 8, but uh, we will we'll bring this to a close. I would encourage you to go to eight, Romans 8 to see a picture of what the hope is. Of what the hope is, of why we have faith, of why despite the hardships of being a shepherd, I persist. And despite the cost that it has for me and for my family, we give. Not to be made much of, not to be put on a pedestal. I don't want to be on the pedestal. Don't put me there. I will disappoint you. My hope is Romans 8. (laughs) My hope is Romans 8. And so though I am broken, I have hope. My job is simply to point to the one who is perfect. To point to the one who is making all things new. The one who is restoring broken things and broken people. You see, the greatest hope that you could have for an elder is to have an elder of faith. And our greatest hope for the sheep that we oversee is that they be sheep of faith. Be encouraged by the work of the Spirit in the lives of the men that you follow and pray for them. I am a broken man, but I'm not defeated. I am a broken man, but I'm being made whole. And I am a broken man, but I have a Redeemer. And you do as well want to encourage you in your brokenness as we walk together from Micah chapter 7.
says, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy, when I fall, for I shall rise. When I sit in the darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light and I shall look upon his vindication. That's your hope, broken people. That's your hope. I'm getting ready to sing a new song, um, one that I had just discovered recently, but seemed to have been singing in my heart for a long time. This is just the perfect words, and no surprise, it comes from Matt Papa and Matt Boswell, uh, the other two favorite Matts in my life. Um, <laughs> the song is incredible, man. It's incredible. Um, I hope you enjoy it when we sing it here. Uh, Greg's going to try to teach the beginning of it before we go into it, but... I don't, I don't know where you're at today. I, I like to think that I do. It's, it's kind of my job. Um, but I don't know where your heart is right now. I don't know what your level of faith is. And Matt, myself, Greg, um, I don't know what all that feels like for you. Um, I promise you this. I will do my best, and I will place my faith in Christ. That is the best that I can do. Um, and I know these guys will stand with me in that. Um, and I will lead in this place until God calls me to do something else. Not necessarily somewhere else, but maybe even here. Um, and so for that, um, I walk with you, a broken man with broken people. Uh, and I want you to encourage you to look to Christ for your faith. As we sing this next song, I want you to be thinking this passage because this is, this is the song. Later in Micah 7, 10 verses later in 18 and 19, he says this, Who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your mercy and kindness. And Father, that you not only forgive us, but Father, you delight to have compassion on people who are your enemies. Father, our immaturity is so silly, so stupid. But Father, we so quickly forget the, the reality of who you are. Father, help us love you rightly. Help us love you more. Help us see you truly. To not be blinded by sin. To not let the accuser accuse us and cause us not to trust you. And Father, that when I wonder if my sins are forgiven, they are. You don't even remember them. And Father, you delight to give compassion. And when I am hiding in my sin, reluctant to come into the light, you're with me. Not only are you ready to forgive me, you delight in it. Father, give us grace as we walk together to have that kind of love and compassion and delight and forgiveness with each other. Father, as we live out this gospel reality of the work of Jesus Christ in our lives amongst each other in their lives. Father, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.